Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. As I said in last week's episode, we're going to be doing things differently for the next few episodes. In this episode, we have a fantastic story from the Pentamarone by Gian Battista Basile. That's Pinto Smalto, and I hope you'll really enjoy it. We also, following the story, have a really wonderful interview with Alessandra Pino, who is one of the authors with Ella Buchanan of The Gothic Cookbook, which is currently seeking funding with Unbound.com. It's a really wonderful book, and I think you'll enjoy the interview. But first, our story. Are you listening comfortably? Then I'll begin. There was once a merchant who wished for his only daughter to be married. But however much he tried to persuade her, and however much he tried to even enforce this, she refused. She didn't want to get married. She hadn't found a man that was good enough for her. Her father was becoming more desperate and more afflicted as time went on. He didn't want to leave her alone when it came the time to leave this world. So, he turned to his daughter one day as he was about to go to the fair, and said, Better, what do you want me to bring back for you? And she said, Daddy, if you love me, bring me half a quintal of Palermo sugar and the same of ambrosian almonds with four or six flasks of scented water, a little musk, a little amber, and also about 40 pearls, two sapphires, a few garnets and rubies, some spun gold, and above all, a modelling bottle and a silver scalpel. Her father marvelled over this extravagant request, yet so not to contradict his daughter, he went to the fair and returned with every single item she had asked for. Once she'd got these things, she shut herself in a room and set herself to making a large quantity of almond paste and sugar mixed with rose water and perfume. And then she began to model a splendid young man for whom she made hair from spun gold, eyes from sapphires, teeth from pearls and lips from rubies. And she adored him with so much grace that the only thing missing was speech. After that was done, since she had heard that another statue had come alive due to the prayers of a certain king of Cyprus, she prayed to the goddess herself, and prayed to the goddess of love for so long that the statue began to open its eyes, and as her prayers became more insistent, he started to breathe, and after breath came words, and finally all of his limbs loosened up, and he began to walk. Happier than if she had acquired a new kingdom, Better hugged and kissed him, and taking him by the hand, brought him before her father, and said, Daddy, my lord, you've always said you're eager to see me married, and so to make you happy, I have chosen the husband of my heart's desire. Upon seeing this beautiful young man come out of his daughter's bedroom, when he hadn't seen him go in, her father remained speechless, but he beheld the very handsomeness of the man. It was so great he could have charged a coin ahead to come and admire it, So he gave his consent that marriage would take place and prepared great festivities. A great feast was made, among which the other ladies present, there appeared a great unknown queen, who, seeing the beauty of Pinto Smalto, for that was the name Better gave him, fell desperately in love with him. Now, Pinto Smalto, who had only opened his eyes on the wickedness of the world three hours before, and was as innocent as a babe, accompanied the strangers who had come to celebrate his nuptials to the stairs, as his bride had asked him. And when he did the same with his queen, she took him by the hand and led him quietly to her coach, drawn by six horses which stood in the courtyard. And then, taking him into it, she ordered the coachman to drive off away to her country. After Bessa had waited a while in vain expecting Pinto's Malto to return, she sent down into the courtyard to see whether he was speaking with anyone there. Then she sent up to the roof to see if he'd gone to take in the fresh air, But finding him nowhere, she directly imagined that, on account of his great beauty, he had been stolen from her. 
So she ordered the usual proclamations to be made. But at last, as no tidings of him were brought, she formed the resolution to go all the world over in search of him, and, dressing herself as a poor girl, she set out on her way. As she set off walking, and after several months, she reached the house of a kind old woman, who received her with much affection. When she heard of Betta's misfortune, and sure that she was pregnant besides, she felt such pity for her, that she taught her three little formulas. The first was Trike Valake, the house reigns. The second, Anola Tranola, the fountain plays. The third, Scatola Matola, the sun shines, telling her to repeat these words whenever she was in trouble, and they'd be a good service to her. Better wondered greatly at this present of, frankly, nonsense, but nevertheless she said to herself, He who blows into your mouth doesn't wish to see you dead, and the plant that strikes root does not wither. Everything's got its use. Who knows what good fortune might be contained in the words? So, saying, she thanked the old woman and set out upon her way. After a long journey, she came into a beautiful city. And she went straight to the royal palace, where she asked for the love of God for some lodging in the stable, since she was close to giving birth. When the ladies-in-waiting heard this, they gave her a little room off the stairs, and from which from there she saw Pinto Smalto go by, which filled her with so much joy, she nearly slid right off the tree of life. When she recovered, she realised she needed to make a proof of the first saying which the old woman had told her, and no sooner had she repeated the words, Trike Valake, the house reigns, than instantly there appeared before her a beautiful little coach of gold, set all over with jewels, which ran about the chamber by itself and was a wonder to behold. When the ladies of the court saw this sight, they went and told the queen, who without loss of time ran to Betta's chamber, and when she saw the beautiful little coach, she asked whether she would sell it, and offered to give whatever she might demand. But Betta replied that, although she was poor, she wouldn't sell it for all the gold in the world. But if the queen wished for the little coach, she must allow her to pass one night in Pintom Smalto's chamber. The queen was amazed at the folly of the poor girl, who, although she was all in rags, would nevertheless give up such riches for a mere whim. However, she resolved to take a good mouthful offered her, and by giving Pinto Smalto a sleeping potion, to satisfy the poor girl, but pay her in bad coin. As soon as night was come, when the stars in the sky and the glowworms on the earth were to pass in review, the queen gave the sleeping potion to Pinto Smalto, who did everything he was told, and sent him to bed and no sooner had he thrown himself on the mattress than he fell as sound asleep as a dormouse. Poor Betta, who sought that night to relate all her past troubles, seeing now that she had no audience, fell to lamenting beyond measure, blaming herself for all that she'd done for his sake, and the unhappy girl never closed her mouth, nor did the sleeping Pinto Smelto ever open his eyes, until the sun appeared with the aqua regia of his rays to separate the shades from the light. When the queen came down, and taking Pinto Smelter by the hand, said to Betta, Now, be content. May you have such content all the days of your life, replied Betta in an undertone, for I have passed so bad a night I shall not soon forget it. The poor girl, however, could not resist her longing, and resolved to make a trial of the second, saying, She repeated the words, Anola Tronola, the fountain plays, and instantly there appeared a golden cage, with a beautiful bird made of precious stones and gold, which sang like a nightingale. When the ladies saw this, they went and told it to the queen, who wished to see the bird. Then she asked the same question as about the little coach, and better made the same reply as before. Whereupon the queen, who perceived, as she thought, what a silly creature better was, promised to grant her request, and took the cage with the bird. As soon as night came, she gave Pinto Smelto a sleeping potion as before, and sent him to bed. 
When Betta saw that again, he slept like a dead person. She began to wail and lament, saying things that removed a flintstone to compassion. And thus she passed another night, full of trouble, weeping and wailing and tearing her hair. But as soon as it was day, the queen came to fetch her captive and left poor Betta in grief and sorrow and biting her hands with vexation at the tricks that had been played her again. In the morning, when Pinto smelled and went to a garden outside the city gate to pluck some figs, he met a cobbler who lived in a room close to where Betta lay and had not lost a word of all she'd said. Then he told Pinto Smelto of the weeping, lamentation and crying of the unhappy beggar girl. And when Pinto Smelto, who had already began to get a little more sense, heard this, he guessed how matters stood and resolved that if the same thing happened again, he would not drink that which the queen gave him. Betta now wished to make the third trial, so she said the words, Tkatola matola, the sun shines, and instantly there appeared a quantity of stuffs of silk, and gold and embroidered scarves with a golden cup. In short, the queen herself could have not brought together so many beautiful ornaments. When the ladies saw these things, they told their mistress, who endeavoured to obtain them as she had done the others. But Betta replied as before, that if the queen wished to have them, she must let her spend her, the night in the chamber of Pinto's melting. Then the queen said to herself, what can I lose by satisfying the silly girl in order to get these beautiful things? So taking all of the treasures which Betta offered her, as soon as night appeared, the instrument for the debt contracted with sleep and repose being liquidated, she gave the sleeping potion to Pinto Smalto. But this time he did not swallow it and making an excuse to leave the room, spat it out again and went to bed. Betta now began the same tune again, saying how she'd kneaded him with her own hands of sugar and almonds, how she had made his hair of gold, his eyes and mouth of pearls and precious stones, and how he was indebted to her for his life, which the gods had granted to her prayers, and lastly, how he had been stolen from her, and how she, big and pregnant, had gone looking for him and had encountered more hardships than the heavens usually allow flesh to endure, and moreover, how she had slept for two other nights with him in exchange for true treasures without being able to say a single word to him, and how this was the last night for her hopes and the terminus for her life. Pinto Smalto, who was awake, heard these words and started to remember, as if in a dream, everything that had happened, and he embraced and comforted her as best he could. And, since night had gone out with its black mask to direct the dance of the stars, he got up very quietly, entered the room where the queen was lost in a deep sleep, took all the things she had stolen from Betta, and all the jewels and golden coins in her strong box, as compensation for the suffering she had caused. Then he returned to his wife, and they left that very moment, and walked until they were beyond the borders of the kingdom, where they rested themselves in excellent lodgings, until Betta gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. When she was able to get out of bed, they set off for her father's house, where they found him alive and healthy and as sprightly as a boy of 15 at the joy of seeing his daughter again. The queen, finding her neither her husband, nor the beggar girl, nor her jewels, nor her money, tore herself to shreds and there was no lack of those who said, those who deceive should not complain if they are deceived. And that is the end of my tale, and I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. Now we move on to our interview. I hope you enjoy it. Ali and I had a really lovely chat. In fact, it went on for much longer than what we have recorded here. Oh, hello, everybody. Um, today we've got a guest um, on the podcast. This is Ali. Um, Ali has a wonderful um, gothic cookbook that she wants to talk to us about. Um, so we're going to have a few questions. Ali's going to share it with us. Um, and then hopefully I'll put all the details in the podcast notes um, so that you can follow up on it if you're interested. Um, hello, Ali, and welcome to Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. What exactly is a gothic cookbook? 
The Gothic cookbook is quite a unique cookbook. I'm writing it with my friend Ella Bucken, a food journalist, who, like me, is passionate about all things food. It's a very special project because it provides new and original food perspectives when it comes to literature and new insight into how food operates, specifically within the context of some of the most well-known Gothic novels. So we'll have over 60 recipes inspired by the text and the food in those texts, as well as beautiful hand-drawn illustrations by the talented Lee Henry of Ounce of Style. Um, the idea behind a Gothic cookbook is that food has a language of its own and is able to tell a story of its own. It isn't just a prop or an embellishment. It has its own voice, and this voice can let you into some of the novel's darkest secrets. Thank you. Sounds wonderful. Um, I've had um, a sort of a look and um, at some of your preliminary drawings are absolutely beautiful and the text absolutely fascinating. Um, I think having read Frankenstein, I was really, I actually thought about it. I thought, you know, I can't think about the food in Frankenstein. I had to go back and have a look. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Um, what do you think the sort of the food elements of Frankenstein can tell us? You know what? Scholarship hasn't overly focused on the fact that Frankenstein's monster is vegetarian. But generally, the idea is that it's being vegetarian symbolically stands for an original benevolence. So the creature includes animals within its moral codes, but is obstructed and violently frustrated when attempting to gain inclusion within the moral codes of humanity. Uh, it proposes the creation of a companion so that it need no longer seek inclusion into human society. And it's at this point that it announces its dietary principles and those that its companion will follow when they, are, when they accept self-imposed exile to South America. And the monster says, or the creature, I should say, the, my food is not that of man. I do not destroy the lamb and the kid to glut my appetite. Acorns and berries afford me sufficient nourishment. So there is a sort of discrepancy between who is the most human between both the creator who brings to life a being who did not ask to be brought to life and abandons him or a monster who, though cast aside, is able to sacrifice himself by eating foods that nourish him less in order to comply with the social rules that see him subjugated to a society that has both created him and cast him aside. In his revenge, Frankenstein's being is rebelling to an unjust society by eating just roots and vegetables. At least that is our take on it. <laughs> that is, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, now you've said it, it's absolutely so clear. I think what happens is, especially with these books that have so many different elements, and I think many Gothic novels do, you can almost, the food is there, and like you said, it's telling us so many things, but actually it depends on how you've approached the book. So if you've sort of read it quite quickly and thought, right, these are the things I need to know, this is, you know, you, you can miss some of the deeper um, elements um, that, the, that the food is trying to tell us. I think, yeah, I guess Rebecca was another one that I thought about. And actually, yes, I think it's, for me, with Rebecca, it's the structures around the food, not necessarily the food itself. So sort of having all the habits and having, you know, all the different, this is how we serve this, this is what we do with this, as opposed to necessarily the actual foods themselves. You know, it's a world of really inflexible social hierarchies. So the theme of food actually acts as a pivot upon which social distinctions are made. So it's exactly what you're saying about the structure more than the food itself. So throughout the novel, the characters are eating according to who they are and where they stand in the class system. Um, in the opening pages, uh, 
the unnamed heroine's employer, Mrs. Van Hopper, is enjoying some fresh ravioli while um, our unnamed heroine is reduced to eating cold meat. And that obviously has a symbology in itself. Um, so I think it's food acting perhaps as an early alarm bell warning of Maxim de Winter's controlling nature as well. Um, after his disappointing proposal over breakfast, he actually offers uh, her segments of his tangerine, which leave a sharp, bitter taste in her mouth. And later food weighs down tables at the ball where there's chicken in aspic and souffles and salmon and lobster mayonnaise, which are all symbols of social status, which is an ever, ever present and often brutal reminder of the first Mrs. De Winter, um, Rebecca. And um, of course, also the housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers in particular will not allow her to be forgotten. And food is among the weapons in her arsenal and always attacks regularly at about half past four when the daily performance of laying afternoon tea begins and every object is crisp and pristine to the point of seeming nearly sinister. Uh, the silver tray, the kettle, the snowy cloth and the spread itself is evocatively described with dripping crumpets and tiny crisp wedges of toast and piping hot flowery scones. So they are mysteriously flavored sandwiches and a very special gingerbread. And this creates a kind of eerie atmosphere where we see her at some sort of unease. There is some sort of unease. Um, and she is controlled by outside forces nearly. And I think this is manifested through the food. Um, in fact, once she becomes the second Mrs. De Winter, um, the, the, the head housekeeper treats her and approaches her daily with a selection of menus that she needs to choose from as lady of the house. But she never has the courage to do this and to make her own individual choices. She always ends up choosing what Rebecca would have chosen according to Mrs. Danvers' suggestions. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, um, it's fascinating. I think for me, I'm always interested in how food can, or can almost make something unwelcoming because I think we always have this picture of food as a welcoming thing food with friends food with family that the idea of like food is almost something you do with love and then you give it you give that food out but actually food when it can be made to be something that sort of separates you from other people is actually oh. quite scary in fact you know yes absolutely and actually there is in the in 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 a kind of gothic food arc or trajectory in that the earlier gothic novels such as the castle of otranto or the anne radcliffe novels for example food is practically inexistent and then becomes more visible in connection to the characters and the plot as the genre develops in time it then becomes progressively more imbued and weighted with issues which connect to our identity in terms of political beliefs and gender as we approach those texts, which are representative of the more modern Gothic. So the fears and cultural anxieties begin to show through food choices and behaviors connected to food. Um, so I think food in the Gothic definitely expresses a set of anxieties um, by acting as a signifier of, uh, for change. And frequently this occurs in a family setting. So it's just started to interest me that food and the act of eating was tied to a series of other meanings of signifiers that aimed at making the person watching feeling uneasy or reading feeling uneasy. So normally food has had the opposite objective, bonding, sitting around the table, as you said, holding hands, a moment of union between families and friends. 
But I began to notice that there was an association between an idea of the disintegration of communication within the family and the community and a representation of a lack of food preparation or care for food as a communal experience. So as a symbol, the meaning of certain foods started to evolve into something different and how it was being used was geared towards creating a sense of unease at first and then fear with the appearance or manifestation of perhaps a supernatural entity or some other form of oppressive manifestation. Um, so, and though we all have to eat, there is an uncanniness that goes hand in hand with eating precisely because it's part of our everyday. And what is outside of our bodies before it enters our body is not us. And so there is an unavoidable otherness when it comes to eating and a strange or eerie feeling arises from the realization that there is something odd happening in perhaps the most vital of the activities that we carry out to stay alive, which is eating. That we engage with the outside world by placing parts of it inside ourselves through our mouths. And for this not to feel odd, there are certain rules, I suppose, that we need to follow. I think almost it's to do with the audience. And the reason I say that is obviously most of what I focus on is, is fairy tales and folk tales. And although they're written down now, a lot of them are most of them factor from the oral tradition, if aside from sort of literary fairy tales. Mm -hmm. And food in fairy tales and folk tales has a, um, almost a very different place. And I think a lot of that comes from need, because obviously this fairy tales and folk tales were usually um, done amongst the poorer members of society and so for them food in a fairy tale and food in a folk tale means a lot more because it's to do with the fact that other you know that a lot of people were starving a lot of people struggled to find food food was an, as a necessity was not always there and so food takes on a very different feel when it's actually what you need to sustain you because you you know it, it's not always it's not always there for people to eat whereas I think books obviously there was a huge amount of poverty and there's always still poverty with us now but as books have been written through the sort of Victorian period and later into the 20th century there has been more food available for everybody. Yes and that's where it takes on different meanings that aren't so connected to subsistence um, but food often comes as a warning sign as well in the gothic novels and I think that's what it has in common with fairy tales many times because it can also be um, a pretext to start on an adventure or a journey uh, for example in Little Red Riding Hood or the lack of food can drive a story forward such as in Hansel and Gretel or food can be a carrier of poison uh, often in fairy tales like in Snow White so there are definitely some things in common but you're right about uh, the fact that there was kind of a, a different view um, in earlier times when it came to food, where it was more connected to, um, yes, to poverty and to having su to survive the day to day. Yeah, I think I, I can't remember where I read this, but I thought it's something that stuck in my mind and I, 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 somebody might recognise it and tell me what book it's from. Um, it's, it's from a modern book. And they actually said what you're looking at now, the person involved hadn't lived through a long period of history and said actually what we have now is there's plenty of food and the other character said but yes but people are poor they can't afford to buy food and he said yes but they can always steal food whereas in earlier times it wasn't that there, you couldn't afford it there just wasn't any we just can't understand that in without privilege even though it's very difficult and there are a lot of people who are hungry and, and need food even in our country even now in theory, it's still accessible. It is not a lack of food available. It is a lack of money. And that isn't some, that's something that's come in more recent history. 
Absolutely, yes, you're absolutely right. And there is a kind of mysteriousness. No, no, I think it is. It's very true. And I think we sort of, yeah, I think, like you said, food's something we all have to have. We can't avoid it. It's not like anything else. I think it's probably the only thing where everybody has it. Everybody, it's a shared um, understanding. But yes, I think it obviously can be used to indicate um, something where there's a problem with somebody when they sense if they use food to avoid other things or more recent novels. I think food is often used like that. It's definitely a tool. There's a communication and a, symbolo- a symbology that surrounds food, and it depends on the cultural context. So we, you know, we can't generalize. But for instance, it's quite interesting to think that coffee as a symbol, considered a stimulant for the nervous system, is now associated to relaxation, and it contrasts its original function. So categories of meaning really overlap, depending on cultural context. Um, so if food is a signifier, it will also represent and symbolize what we consider to be dangerous within a community. So in many ways, food is a warning sign of upcoming danger and it can represent a character's vulnerability. And there's so much going on when it comes to the meaning of food. Um, so we can definitely read Gothic literature and notice some of these food rules or patterns of consumption, which is what a Gothic book cookbook is is essentially essentially doing which is which is something new and original I think it's absolutely fascinating I, I really can't wait to read it but it's very excited about myself and um, I am also excited about the recipes too I think the one I've seen is it the goulash or the yeah yeah Dracula yeah well the you know food here really lulls Jonathan Harker into a sort of false sense of security with cold cuts and spicy smoky spe- peppery stew and it is in fact a creamy um, paprika lace chicken paprikash inspired by the classic Hungarian stew which is enjoyed by Jonathan Harker before entering Dracula's castle and inspiring warm thoughts of home while the chilling unknown lies ahead for him. Um, so we will be definitely doing um, paprika hendel recipe and doing robber steak. Jonathan's last supper before setting off on his fateful journey to meet Count Dracula Um, could actually uh, hardly sound less appetising. He dines on robber steak, made up bits of bacon, onion and beef, strung on sticks. And it's a meal that he likens to the London's cat's meat, not something one would necessarily rush to recreate in a home kitchen, but um, this wasn't the meat of cats, but meat for cats. So scraps of horse meat and other slaughterhouse byproducts, which were sold cheaply to pet owners. So still not particularly appetizing, but this version that we're doing is made with steak quality beef and rashes of bacon, peppers and onions, and it's really delicious. So um, it's um, it's a real hit at barbecue, can be a real hit at barbecues and browned over glowing coals. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about the, the, the paprikash recipe? It sounds really interesting. So unlike Dracula's cold cuts, this traditional Hungarian dish, also known as paprika hendel, is a warm welcome in a bowl thick, rich, and shot through with the subtle smokiness of paprika. You can serve the pink sauce stew spooned over ribbons of black tagliatelle, usually colored by squid ink or activated charcoal for the full Gothic effect. And it will taste just as lovely accompanied by noodles, potatoes, or rice though. Or you can simply eat it with a spoon, perhaps with some chunky bread to mop up the sauce. For a vegetarian version, we will be providing vegetarian versions for the recipes. You can try chickpeas in place of chicken or simply roast extra vegetables like mushrooms, courgettes and leeks. That sounds absolutely wonderful. And even though it's a very summery day here, I can still fancy that now. I just thought that sounds absolutely lovely. These recipes are quite kind of um, hearty, I think. So uh, they'll be absolutely perfect for Halloween. So let's hope 
that we get uh, full, fully funded by then because that yes. would be amazing. Oh no, definitely. Oh, yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? I, I try and eat seasonally, but you know, within limits. You know, so I'm not going to sort of go back to the sort of 1840s, but um, I do try if I can. But mostly because I just think food fit. You can really celebrate the things. So like when asparagus comes into season, I just eat so much asparagus and I just love it. But as soon as winter sort of cold weather starts to come around the corner, bit of a tint on the leaves. That's me gone. I'm fully into winter food. I would. I, I, I don't really eat like fresh tomatoes in the winter for that because for me they're never that great anyway, and it's not. It just doesn't fit with the with the feel of, yeah. of how I should be eating. But yeah, in the summer again, I glut on like tomatoes and like, you know those beautiful sort of tasty, you know, really fresh, and it's perfect for the season. I think the gothic element. I think almost the winter, autumn and winter is like the perfect time to read that type of book where you're talking about the darkness almost and the horror and actually the food sort of offsets against that a hardcore gothic novel fan to be reading um gothic novels in the height of summer really but I'm afraid that is what I do though (laughs) well it's okay because you're hardcore so it's fine And uh, probably some of our readers will also will also enjoy doing that. Yeah, I think so. I'm the same with music as well because I have this amazing Icelandic playlist of really fantastic Icelandic music. Um, but I don't have to play it in the summer because for me it's like that's fine. That's that's cold weather music, and I, I can't listen to it as soon as the weather gets cold. I put my I haven't got a real fire sadly, but I do have a fire that pretends to be a fire on my television, and yeah. so I pop that on, <laughs> put on the fairy lights, and uh, okay. and. And, and the Icelandic thing and hopefully if it, as you said if it's funded um, I'll be digging into some d- delicious um, sort of yeah so I can I can bring my seasonal issues all together <laughs> that would be amazing and I think you can really safely read this book between the between you know September and possibly April <laughs> yes um I think I have to say my I'm unusual in that obviously I love the summer but my favorite season's autumn I just love that sort of fall into um cold weather and jumpers and the ability to wear boots on a permanent basis yeah no I I love it yes and I'm never happier when it's a grey day and it's raining so yeah I think I have to say I think fairy tales are fine you can do fairy tales and folk tales all year because it very much depends on the on the tale that you're telling I think storytelling is fires are so important if people have the idea of it being around a fire or even being around a campfire in the summer so you know it's you know you can move that the best ghost stories always start around the fire with someone retelling an experience from their youth which yeah. they had never thought about you know yeah. and, and they want to tell the story to the rest of their family and it's always around Christmas time without fail always a fi- always a fire for sure like yeah. the woman in black actually that's how it starts I believe and <laughs> yes it's very very creepy love it <laughs> I actually went on a, a little mini course done by the Scottish Storytelling Festival about how to tell ghost stories. So, and it was fantastic. It was really good and also terrifying because she used some films as like, this is how you need to do it, but you need to do this. This is this is the effect you need to achieve and this is how you do it. And she used films as clips and it was wonderful and terrifying. I was like, I had to put all the lights on afterwards. I, just like, I didn't know these courses existed. I must yeah. look it up. Yeah, no, it was wonderful. Really, well, it was an online one, and it, it really was good. What would you say in in within the book? Would you say is like your favourite story and favourite food combination? Have you got one? Am I being very unfair? Maybe you choose one of your children. I do. I have to admit, one of my favourites is Rosemary's Baby. There's something about this book. It's the way it's written. It is so perfect, and the way food is used as well is just wonderful in particular 
well, let me tell you a little bit about the book. So it centres on Rosemary Woodhouse, who is a young married woman who's just moved into a New York City apartment building with her husband, Guy, who is a struggling actor. And Rosemary and Guy have a picnic of tuna sandwiches and beer in their new apartment on the floor. And there's an initial air of normality established in this way. So initially through food. But the neighbour, Minnie, makes frequent appearances with food and drink, for instance, chocolate mousse. And we begin to gain a little bit more insight into Rosemary and Guy's relationship from this point on. Rosemary complains that the mousse has a chalky undertaste and only has two spoonfuls. Guy makes a scene and basically forces her to finish it. And with Guy's insistence, we can really see the relationship is not a healthy one. In fact, Rosemary asks the question referring to Guy, who, as we said, is an actor. Could anyone know when an actor was true or not acting? And this sets the tone for the food scenes, too, in which she realises that she cannot trust the food that she's being given and realises that she's being poisoned from within the walls of her own home. How awful is that, Rachel? I just there's something so creepy about that, about not being able to trust what you're putting inside your body, even within your own home and the and with the person that you share your life with. So that very same night that she eats the mousse, Rosemary has a dream that she is being um, raped by something unhuman, following which she starts eating glutton's meals. So man-sized cans of beef stew and other meats and even rare meat. Um, so we decided to, um, to, to recreate the mousse recipe taking inspiration from the chalky undertaste, uh, which reminds Rosemary of blackboards and grade school. And so uh, we, we have um, individual chalk and chocolate mousses with layers of dark and white mousse served in china cups and topped with walnut pieces. Now walnuts, um, the spiritual meaning of walnuts, they remind us to use discernment as we navigate through times of challenge and loss and misfortune. So we thought it would be nice to, to include that in the mousse as well. Um, and they really are delicious, I have to say. It sounds wonderful. I'm a, I'm a fan of chocolate mousse, I have to say, and, wal and walnuts, in fact. I hadn't realised that that was the, the, the spiritual meaning behind walnuts. I'm good with figs. I've talked to you a lot about figs, but walnuts is, a, is, is not an area I've looked at, I have to say. With my podcast, I ended up doing a lot of research with feed, and figs was one of the things I did. I, I went down a rabbit hole. I, I've, I've, figs are just... Oh, they're they're wonderful, and the, the stories behind them, the mythology behind them, they're just the fascinating things. I'm going to go and boost my earlier podcast episode to tell people more about things. It's fascinating. Yeah. I read, yeah, books, just a book about them that was amazing. I suppose to an extent, we don't look at. I think there's a lot of the like you said, the spiritual meaning and and the things behind this. But people just don't realise they're there and almost miss them when they read about them because they don't know. Almost yeah. in a way, like the Victorian language of flowers. Well, flowers were so important and people talked about them and they meant so many different things. But actually, when we go back and read literature that's from those times where that language is used, we don't actually appreciate it because we don't. It's not something we do. It's not something we understand. Yeah. And, and isn't it amazing that language can do this? It's in, and things like flowers and food, they are active and passive in the same way. They, they hold so much meaning yeah. and they are actively used. But then throughout throughout time then it kind of goes into a disuse and we have no idea what that original meaning was nearly sometimes yeah. and I think it's the same with um with definitely with food yes really fascinating to think that I think we only sort of keep, keep it 
um, to an extent where things like religion, um, like religious ceremonies that involve food or specific foods, like Passover meals, where the different elements mean certain things and different ways of breaking fast um, sort of within, you know, um, different other religions where you have specific foods because they mean something. But I think people remember those because those stories are told within those religious communities constantly. But I think, yeah, outside of that, I think we've lost so much of the knowledge that people had of why like why foods were put together. Yeah, not just necessarily about flavours, but there's this, like the symbols of them as well. Yes, and there's um, a, a, a professor... Alison Landsberg in a book called Prosthetic Memory talks about the Passover ritual and the importance of the lamb shank, the egg, um, and the app, all, all the foods together. And this ritual that is performed is a kind of reenactment. But at the same time, we don't need to specifically understand the function that those foods held at the time, at the original time that that it that it derived from it's just nearly a memorial it's nearly a, a monument to something and it just keeps something alive but we don't always really understand what the connection fully is and I think it's the same with food and I think at some point if we were eating walnuts to ward off or if we were um, holding juniper berries to ward off evil or a particular nut to do to kind of defeat the devil I think we would probably wouldn't do that for the same reason now but and we, we, we would forget why we were doing this, but it would still be present in our in our everyday in some way. Um, and it just depends, you know, what what kind of symbology and importance it has for us now. So food is very, very interesting when it comes to what it can represent at different times in generations and due to different events and what kind of memory we're seeking to um, uphold and why you know um, I think um, it kind of acts in the same way as um, as a statue sometimes uh, where we're remembering something but the reasons behind why we're remembering that thing isn't necessarily 100% clear especially not to younger generations and then there's a kind of gap between and we have to keep you know remembering and remembering and food in a way acts as the same gap filler so it allows us to to, to relive and reenact um, an event, and it's interesting. It's interesting that sometimes there are certain events that are remembered. Um, so I was talking recently about, for example, the siege of Paris and the Commune. We we definitely remember the Commune more than the siege of Paris, and that's because then it was that that memory of the Commune was taken by you know socialism and Lenin was wrapped in a, in a communard flag and then it was taken by you know other political parties and for other reasons remembered more in film and, and media so that's why we remember that particular event more than the siege of Paris which possibly at the time was a lot more important in many ways so I think yeah. that that's really fascinating. It is I think you don't think about it but it's not something I think a lot of people are aware of I mean, this is totally off topic. And I think, I think like one of the more in sort of more, well, it's, I guess it's 19th century, so it's not really that, it's not modern at all. Um, but Emile Zola's Belly of Paris. Yes. As a food novel, which is basically, it's just, <laughs> yeah. But his descriptions of food, like the, the orchestra of cheeses, when actually all of that sound, one, it's wonderful if you love cheese because it's amazing the way, and you think, oh, that's exactly, that's exactly the right sound for cheese, that cheese. Yeah. And I think it's wonderful. But actually it's almost talking about the rotting 
you know, all that food and all that amazing things. And, and the whole idea of as long as business is okay, you don't care about what the government does because they're yes. keeping business fine. And the signs of all this plenty when actually the society that it represents is, is rotten underneath. And yeah, yeah I, I, I think, it, yeah, but that just makes you, also makes you hungry, that book. So um, <laughs> anything with cheese, but cheese. Yeah. But it can really be representative of a nation and it can really, yes, kind of hold many, many different meanings. Yeah. But also it kind of reminds us um, once you enter into the Gothic a bit more, that Gothic mindset that whatever you you eat, you're chewing and you're destroying. And it is essentially a destructive process and you're keeping yourself alive by eating. But also it's a, it's a reminder of your mortality. So... Yeah all the grandeur that surrounds food is nearly uh, some sort of celebration of, of life. So I like to view it in a both, both in a positive and in a sad way. <laughs> there is a sadness to it. Yes, I think so. Um, I am, um, I don't know, do you, have you, do you know Kate Young, the food writer? Do you yes. know of her work? Little yes, library. Little Library Cookbook. And she's done a Christmas one and there's another one I can't remember the title of. Um, but she did a British Library talk um, earlier on this year about food and crime and food and crime novels. And it was wonderful. And I had, you got to see the recording again, so I did. I got to see it again and it was just fascinating. Um, but there's um, how food is used in, in, in crime novels and how it isn't, because obviously it can be about poison and it can be about just setting a scene and the one thing I loved um Dorothy L Sayers um one of the reasons she created Peter Whimsey as a lord with him being rich and doing all these things was because at the time when she was writing she was so she had no money she was like really broke and she's yeah. had a rich person in her story she could relive the life she wanted and the meals she wanted to eat oh. through her rich protagonist so um yeah. he would go to the Ritz and eat food so she could give him all the food that she would wanted to have eaten and like yeah. go to the places and have the car and I just thought it's absolutely fascinating isn't it that you that's how you live your your life through the through the book yeah and you can feel empathy with the yeah. with characters through the food and yeah. I don't know did she talk about the girl with the dragon tattoo or that's one where, where I'm I'm quite interested in no food. she didn't mention that but there was so much she could have done one of the things she does yeah. um Andrea Camilleri um, oh gosh, I can't remember her name, but there's a great book about food in Camilleri's novels and lots of fish and sardines. And I just love the way that yeah. he's he's not really able to cook, but he goes out and eats a lot. And then yeah. he has his yeah. uh, maid that puts food in the fridge for yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I know. yeah in, the, in some crime, you see that, for example, there is um, a lot of pizza eating, things on the go, you know, yeah. pizza, pizza here, yeah. pizza there, because it's things that are quick and it just, yeah. I think it denotes a lack of caring for oneself in many ways. Like you don't have time for the physical, spiritual yeah. aspect of your life. You're too busy solving a crime and like being active. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's that there's this whole sort of, cuddly wonderful image of all food is made with love and you give this love to your family through food but I think you can give a lot of other emotions through food and I think resentment is one of the ones that and oh. because that whole thing of you know you're sitting there eating that it's taking me three hours and to cook all of this and do this together and yeah. you, you know and it isn't done with love anymore because you're just sick of the fact that you've you've you know had that nobody appreciates what you've done and I think that's a um yeah I think oh. it, yeah it's a it's a I think everyone has this whole food and love thing and I don't think it's always food and love I think it can be yeah and it's not and you know it's coming out more recently which is why I think the gothic cookbook is um relevant because I think we haven't seen that that idea of food yet enough 
of food as violence, food as aggression, food as resentment, food as holding within it all the anxieties and injustices of society sometimes. And it's just not been visible because we want to cover it up with nice fluffy things. And that isn't always possible and it's not right. And I think that many times, a lot of times the food in, in Gothic novels highlights this oppression. It can be a reliving and really it is always a reliving because you're constantly preparing meals, constantly cooking. And if that's done increasingly with resentment or with sadness, you know, that is something that's going to come out. Um, so it is, yeah, something that's, I think, becoming more of, an, of a visible element now as we gain more rights and rights, you know, to speak out about things without feeling um, like it's something wrong. And I think people are telling their, their experiences and, um, and hopefully that will instill a, a kind of re-education process but it's kind of the structure in which we all find ourselves and we have to get on with it so we have to still live and we still have jobs and if this is what it's like then it takes a big movement to change all this yeah. and I do think it's changing. It is and I think there's um we're gonna get back to your book now and this is my question um because I think we, we've looked at food and it's been wonderful and we've looked at this sort of horror and, and some of the other um the reasons behind um the stories and the symbology of food but actually Having looked into this, I think this is the big question. What does gin have to do with Jane Eyre? <laughs> gin has everything to do with Jane Eyre. I think um, it's, well, in, in the book, it's kept in the form of a, of a private bottle, which um, is held by Mrs. Poole, who, from which she often takes a drop over much. And that really plays a crucial role because it allows Mr. Rochester's incarcerated wife, Bertha, to break free from her room and roam the hallways of Thornfield. So that's why we thought we'd include a gin and tonic cake inspired by Mrs. Poole's destructive habit. And ultimately her overindulgence in gin triggers Mr. Rochester's downfall in Jane Eyre um so that's what that's the story behind that <laughs> fabulous that's really wonderful thank you um so I believe that you've got a discount code that um our listeners can um use um, I'll obviously put this in the show notes as well but if you want to tell us what that is if you head to unbound.com and look up a gothic cookbook you will find us we are crowdfunding this project and have had a really great response so far but we do still need some support so for the listeners of folklore food and fairy tales we're offering a special discount code gothicpod1010 um, and we're on instagram and twitter at a gothic cookbook too so do give us a follow that's great. Thanks very much. Um, and it's been really lovely to meet with you. And it's been such a lovely time to have this conversation. As I said, all this will be in the show notes. So if you need any more information, I'll put the links in there as well. Um, and thanks very much for being with us today. It's been great. Thank you. Rachel, thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think that's it for this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed the slight change. Um, next episode, there will be another story and maybe another surprise, or it may just be the story. Um, I look forward um, to having you back with me. And as always, if you would like to review the podcast or give it a five-star rating, if I can be so cheeky, that does help other people find the podcast. Thanks again. And thank you for listening to Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. Mm-hmm.